I'm Ryan Landrosov. Welcome to Let's Think Digital. How do we make digital technologies work for everyone? For people like me who've spent years working at the intersection of technology and public policy, this is one of the most important questions we face. It doesn't matter how innovative or effective digital technologies are if public institutions can't implement them in a way that lets everybody be able to access and benefit from them. Unlike the private sector, government doesn't get to pick and choose who its users are. It has to be able to serve everybody. That's why principles like accessibility and sustainability and openness are so critically important for technology when it's being used by the public sector. And who better to talk about this with than Mike Gifford? In addition to being an associate with Think Digital, Mike is a senior strategist with Civic Actions, a technology consultancy that helps governments to deliver better services through modern technology and design. Mike's got a long history working on online accessibility and being a leader in the open source community here in Canada and globally, and I think brings a really interesting perspective to digital transformation from his work in Canada and around the world. So really excited to have Mike join us here on the podcast and dive into this conversation about how do we make technology work for everybody. So Mike, maybe I'll just get you to, to introduce yourself quickly and give a little bit about your background and kind of how you come to some of these issues. For sure. Um, I, I started uh, my own business in 99 and, and uh, you know, open source has always been part of that. Um, I've been involved in, in, in officially supporting open source projects for over 20 years now. Um, the biggest contributions that I've made are around Drupal with the Drupal community. Um, I'm still a, 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 um, a, a Drupal core accessibility maintainer. Um, so taking on an official responsibility to try and, and address the accessibility of that product. Um, but, but in the process of having that official role, a lot of things sort of came became more apparent. Um, so, so one of them was just that, that it was, it was difficult to go off and to get contracts with government as a small business, uh, you know, owner, it was difficult to manage that process. And, and, um, and I was seeing that a lot of times, although accessibility is always being part of the government's mandate, it was always sort of put down to the, the last sort of, it was, it, it was never a, a real priority in terms of choosing either vendors or, or solutions that really understood them. Mike, maybe just to back up for a second, cause I know this is something <clears throat> near and near to your heart, you do a lot of work on is maybe even just to define what we mean by accessibility when it comes to digital products. Because I think, you know, a lot of people, their conception of accessibility, you know, they would think about, let's say, somebody who's visually impaired, you know, they can't see, they have to use a screen reader. You know, in the government context, uh, for anybody who works kind of in with the federal government, people might be familiar with the, the Deborah Jodan case from over a decade ago now, yeah. woman who was visually impaired who sued the federal government because she couldn't apply for, for jobs through the online portal, um, you know, that and, and I think I feel like a lot of the conversation around accessibility gets framed just in this notion of essentially visual impairments. But as I know you talk about often, it's a much bigger spectrum. So I, I thought maybe it'd be helpful just to start with getting you to kind of unpack a little bit. You know, what do we really mean by accessibility when it comes to the web? I think the, the the biggest misconception is is that it's just about just for blind folks, and and it's not that that blind individuals aren't an important part of the po population. They are there, but they're an extreme use case. Um, if you're looking at at uh, 
you know, at accessibility in general and digital accessibility, you're thinking about all of the ways that people are facing barriers and interacting with the web. And that actually um, moves it just from a, a very small community, the blind, uh, you know, completely blind sort of population uh, or screen reader users to a much larger set of populations, which is, which actually it's, it's, it's a quarter of the population, a quarter of the Canadian population uses or needs, needs has some sort of disability that, that affects how they, they interact with, with the world, whether that's the physical world or, or the 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 digital world, wow. um, and a lot of those those disabilities are things that are are invisible. Partly because you know there's co- cognitive disabilities, there's visual you know visual disabilities that you're not going to see. I mean, how how many people do you know are colorblind? Well, you're not going to ever be able to identify somebody that's colorblind based on looking at them. It's only if you right. tell the, if you have a conversation with them or you notice that they're they're missing color cues that that uh, um, that you're going to be able to understand that they they are colorblind. Um, but but for most people, you're not going to know that. Um, there's also that idea of of permanent disabilities that that are. Things that that are affecting us all the time, um, but uh, so for people who have a, a physical disability of some sort, that uh, you know is is a permanent issue. But but also uh, temporary and situational disabilities. So how often have you gone to go get your eyes checked and, and suddenly it's it's uh, it's difficult to see, or you've got uh, allergy season, um, or you're in a loud room, or you're like there's there's a lot of places where just in the in the way that humans interact with technology now, um, it actually affects all of us all the time. I mean, not all, but like in, in in different spaces where we're able to go off and, and um, at, you know if if we're if there's there's conditions that affect us whether we're we're it's it's, it's a bright day outside we want to work on our laptop and we're trying to go off and, and we're having trouble seeing the 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 low contrast fonts on our phone or um, it's it's too bright out or you you want to go off and watch your screen at at night but but there's uh, there isn't dark mode available on the the uh, the, the, the interfaces that right. you're using and there's too much high, there's too much contrast it's hard on your eyes because it's dark in the room but it's you know the device is just beaming at you so you need to have a lower contrast in order to be able to see that um, when you're in that context. Um, so so there's your disability is really about, um, in many ways, thinking about the human condition and embracing the fact that humans have limited, have will always have limited senses and that we need to be able to maximize the use of our senses as we can in all the ways we want to interact with technology. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I really like that model because you, you share it often when we do our digital leadership program, you know, this notion of kind of temporary situational and permanent disability, which I think is, I think it was Microsoft, actually, that kind it of is. Uh, had, had framed some of that. And actually, I think, interestingly, you know, Microsoft is a company in particular, um, which has done a lot of focus, it seems, on accessibility in the last few years. They've, they've been real leaders. And, and so much of that comes right from the CEO, that, that, that there's been a, a real commitment and an openness to the importance of accessibility and there's been a in in so many ways microsoft has been a an example of what other companies should should emulate in terms of openness mm. and and activity around accessibility um i've got other issues with it with with microsoft uh, for sure i'm, I'm not I, but, but i i'm yep. really happy with what they've done for with accessibility and the leadership they provided there and frankly they've also done some really interesting work on open source as well around accessibility yep. and, and how they're sharing and contributing um in that space as well yeah, no, and th- listen, and I think that's totally fair, and I think it's worth calling out, you know, when, when some of the big tech companies are doing good stuff and not mm-hmm. just kind of lumping it all into one category that big tech equals bad always. 
Um, and, and and this, I mean, I imagine you know part of why part of why they're focusing on this too. I mean, there's an altruistic side to it, but I think there's probably a business side, which is just you know when we think about those kind of um, situational um, types of disabilities, part of that just relates to having a, a an aging population, right? Sure. And as the population gets older, you know, I think you were saying, Mike, now it's 25 percent of Canadians that have some kind of impairment when they're interacting with online materials. Well, I imagine not, that's not, only going to go up with people, online, the older but, eyesight gets worse, etc. Yeah, it's, it's not in just general. The, in general, in yeah. general, but 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 yeah, absolutely. As we get older, um, we have have um, you know our eyesight gets worse, our ability to see ranges of colors gets worse, our ability to go off and to even understand the navigation. Like you know, older people interact with the web differently than younger people, and part of that is just the the ability to to map the um, the the navigational structure along with with the the um, for every different website. So um, so trying to go off and and, and have a consistent interface is really useful for for older populations who are not necessarily going to know that oh yeah this is how is it a is it a hamburger menu or a shish kebab menu or a, or like what is the what is it how am i interacting with the the information to get where i want to go like th- that's something that old, younger people are more quickly able to go off and adjust between those kinds of right. navigation elements yeah, and that you know it's an interesting point, right? Because as the design around navigation for digital systems has evolved, I mean, in the early days of the web, it really kind of mirrored like you know librarian systems, right? Of information yeah. classification tended to you know tended to look like a table of contents from like a textbook mm-hmm. that people would kind of apply to web pages because that was our collective mental model, right? About yeah. best practices on organizing information. And that's changed a lot. I mean, as you say, you know, the hamburger menu that kind of became ubiquitous with the rise of mobile and and smartphones has changed. You know, we're getting into voice control now, which kind of changes the dynamic on that. And then, you know, one of some of the stuff that we do, you know, Think Digital is around virtual reality and the metaverse. And we can imagine, you know, this next decade as we start getting into a world of kind of immersive tech, uh, that's going to change our model again around how do we organize and sort and find information. It's it's definitely and, there will and, be a lot know, of changes for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and so with all of this, so it's no, and you know, I think this is a helpful kind of background on on what we kind of mean by accessibility and and what that kind of looks like in a tangible way. You know, one of the issues we're talking about here, obviously, is around procurement, right? And mm-hmm. how government, you know, buys technology, buys services. Government has policy requirements around external service provision to citizens that they have to make sure that there's, you know, certain accessibility requirements met. Although I think probably, you know, you, you probably share the view that's probably not always happening in all cases. But I'm wondering from that, you know, procurement's one of these big levers that government has, right, to kind of mm-hmm. shape the types of tools it's bringing in, both for external services, but also for internal use cases as well. Like, to what degree are you seeing accessibility requirements actually being baked into the procurements that are going out? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I don't think that it really has changed all that much um, in Canada. It's definitely, um, even in Europe and the U.S., there's there's slow changes, but it hasn't necessarily, I don't think any any um, government that I'm aware of has really got a, a package that necessarily works. Um, the educational institutions in the U.S. are doing a lot more uh, to try and, and consolidate and, and have a mature procurement model that um, I'm still not sure that's necessarily in the right direction, but it's, 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 they're under a lot of pressure because because they're large institutions, um, but gets sued by by people all the time around accessibility issues because of the the legal structure of Section 508 in the U.S. and how that enforcement mechanism is managed. Um, hmm. But uh, but I would say that the that most most government contracts will well th- there will be something in the RFP that says you know. Um, th- 
that that you know that, that this pro- this contract must meet you know uh, WKEG 2.0 AA standards. That's been there for over a decade. Uh, that that will probably also be a bullet point in the contract. Um, but that approach is something that doesn't really work. In, in the U.S., there was a, an effort 20 years ago to try and build something called a VPAT, which is the Voluntary Product Accessibility Template. And VPATs were a good idea to try and get get vendors to identify the um, identify the accessibility concerns that they're aware of in the products and services that they, they implement. Um, unfortunately, it hasn't been well managed. And, and essentially at this point um, in 2023, it is just a sales document. Um, mm. all, all people are doing when they're filling in a VPAT is that, that, I mean, there are good vendors that do this and, and certainly Microsoft and um, you know IBM and Oracle, and there's a bunch of go- companies that have invested and really understand how to create a good VPAT and invest in them to go off and to create them. Um, but but for the most people, most part, um, all that all that happens is you you have a table that that matches the WKEG success criteria, and people say, you know, it, it supports support 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 supports, and and it's a legal process, it's a sales process, it's not really an accessibility process, it's not baked into the process of building and developing uh, software. Um, so. So that's that's one of the big problems with with uh, with the procurement and accessibility is that it's not it's not something that is is um, is integrated, um, right? And and there's also there's sort of no assumption that that governments have to take responsibility once they've got that contract signed or once they've they've implemented this. And um, and if you've ever, you know for anyone who's who's managed contracts with 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 governments, you, they. They set the priorities. They set the tone. They are the client, and you're there to serve the client. And if the client does not ask on a regular basis, is this accessible? How are you managing accessibility? Can we get this feature and make it accessible? If they're not a team player in the process of building this customized product for government, um, then then it's not going to be – it's never going to be properly built. They have to be on board with right. the process so that it is a priority that's being dealt with and not something that's left to the very end, You know, the week before the website launches, to say, oh – by the way, this has to meet the uh, you know WK two point double AA standards for the uh, for for our uh, for our website because it because of the, the the Accessible Canada Act and and the legislation that are provided within that and you signed a contract that said you deliver this like you, right. you can't sneak it in at the end it has to be it's just like security like if you if you tried to go off and build a secure product and you only did your security evaluations in the last week before right. your your product launched you know, you know that would fail and 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 you wouldn't. See that as, as an acceptable thing to, to accomplish. Yet, um, time and time again, governments are waiting to the very last minute to go off and address accessibility issues, and they're implementing it badly. Yeah, and it's you know I've heard you make this point you know a number of times, Mike, and I think it's such an important one that that this you know accessibility, like you said, like security and a lot of these other considerations, they have to be part. It's a process, not a checklist, mm-hmm. right? And we tend to think about these things in kind of a checklist format, where it's like a binary: is my website accessible or not? And I think you've often made the case that it's it's often not that much of a of a binary kind of decision. It's really this needs to be just part of your practice on an ongoing basis. Both when you're developing tech, but also, you know, to your point, when you're maintaining it and doing the follow-up and the evolution of it over time. I mean, absolutely. It's it's about knowing your audience. It's about trying to go off and make sure that you're. I mean, there there are things that are black and white, but so much of accessibility is not, and and is is does require mm-hmm. a matter of trying to know who are you building this for, and how can you 
um, j just like user experience, how can you try and and build so that you're able to as best as possible support your um, your audience? Um, and one of the, the audiences that government regularly overlooks is their own staff. Um, public employees should right. have accessible interfaces. Um, they should be supported in their, their the authoring process to make sure that what they're creating is as as accessible as possible. There should be a proactive effort within the software that's being built to to actually support authors who are creating content so that they're not they're not having to be accessibility experts when they're creating it. There are sort of given defaults that are are good to go and that they can just focus on creating the content, um, whether they have a disability or not. They can focus on creating the content in a way that allows them to to get their job done. And if I'm right in understanding, I mean, this is this is a requirement now under the new legislation, right? Because for many years, the, the kind of internal policies, at least with the federal government in Canada, only kind of looked at accessibility for, you know, citizens or the public. But I think, Mike, am I right in saying that, and you'll know the details on this better than I do, the new legislation that came in a year or two ago um, makes this re a requirement for internal tools as well? I think that the legislation is now three years old at this point. The pandemic kind of can compress things, but it's a uh, but absolutely right. uh, the the um, the whole um, Accessible Canada Act uh, does have a have a, a federal federal employer sort of aspect that was not really part of the uh, Supreme Court uh, Act that uh, the Donna Johan case. Um, so so the, the yeah the Supreme Court decision was only affecting public facing websites. It did not affect the the the, the page the, um, the the, the the content that are uh, that a public um, that a, 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 a public uh, well, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the uh, a public employee uh, a civil yep. servant would be be interesting. So it was uh, it it, it uh, you know although there were there's previous legislation around that there was like a 2002 act called the the duty to accommodate which which should have have forced this in place that there was was a um, a requirement to try and make sure that we are buying digital mm -hmm. technology that 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 was was accessible to begin with and didn't need to be altered after the fact for for when when uh, um you know somebody with disabilities gets gets engaged in a project um you know i think that that uh, I've, heard, I've heard stories about about people you know saying well you know do we really need to deal with accessibility for for our own own our own employees we know that that our staff doesn't have disabilities and so you know do we need to pay this additional price to go off and make sure that, that the the authoring interface is also accessible and it's like well you know what your staff are now you don't actually know if they have disabilities that they have disclosed to you or not you also don't know who your staff are going to be in a year's time when the software actually gets right. developed and you know there's there's also a requirement as part of the accessible Canada Act to to hire 5,000 new people with disabilities as part of the the government of Canada and you know there may be a mandate to actually you know bring in people onto your team who have disabilities and to be a a good role model for 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 the for, for, for the rest of Canada on how we should be employing people with disabilities inside our, our organizations because um, that was really the intention of the accessible Canada Act was to right. To have the the public sector be a, a role model for for the rest of Canada, um, and if you compare the government of Ontario and and the government of Canada, the government of Ontario hires more people with disabilities per you know per population than the government of Canada. So they're doing a better hmm. job than the government of Canada is um, around you know hiring people with disabilities. Um, and it really well, and it, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say, Mike, I mean, I think this is this is really important aspect, you know, when we're talking about government in for two purposes, right? One, 
government, unlike a private sector company, doesn't have that option of just picking one segment of the market that it's going to serve, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it needs to provide services information for everybody um, who are going to have a wide variety of needs. And then, you know, to the point you're just making now, we also kind of, I think, have this notion that we want our government to kind of look like our citizenry in a whole bunch of ways, right? We yeah. want we want the public service to essentially be representative of the citizens that the public is, is serving. And if we don't have ways to be able to hire people who might have a whole variety of, of different accessibility, um, you know, concerns or challenges, then, yeah, we're, we're certainly limiting that ability um, to be representative. And we often talk about in, in digital government circles how empathy is one of the most important, you know, skill sets when it comes to building, you know, user-centered products that meet the needs of citizens. And it's tough to kind of build institutional empathy if the people in your institution aren't representative of the people that they're serving at the end of the day. Absolutely. It's, it's so critical to having a, um, a functioning uh, government in many ways. If you're building products for the citizens to be able to have a, a representation that allows for, for um, some knowledge, some internal knowledge of how uh, the kinds of challenges that the citizens are having. And uh, and that's something yep. you can't get if everyone is working, you know, from an office with no disabilities in from the national capital region. Like we we really have to be able to to have a more diverse workforce, uh, which includes having people with disabilities. So you you mentioned a minute ago about kind of government being a being a leader, and I wanted to actually just take a little bit of a different slant on this. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about also was was we what we kind of call sustainability for digital, mm-hmm. um, and you know we sometimes kind of think about you know online technology or, or digital technology in general not necessarily through the lens of carbon footprints and, you know, how it might contribute to to climate change challenges. But the reality is, you know, as digital becomes a bigger part of our lives and society, it's taking up a bigger share of our electricity generation. Um, and that, at some point, probably needs to factor in and historically really has it. Curious to kind of get your thoughts on this, because I know this is something that you, you know, you think about and care about a lot, is how do, how do we kind of see sustainability issues being thought about in, in the context of building digital products. Um, it is definitely happening in Europe. There's definitely big measures to, to do this. Uh, the, the, the government of France has done some really interesting um, work recently to try and introduce legislation that is is raising awareness about the impact and, and trying to provide educational information around that. Um, there was a, a great podcast that was looking at, at uh, um, legislation around the world uh, and, and efforts that are being being done to try and, and uh, um, bring in digital sustainability as part of that. Um, I think, although I think that, that in North America, I think that the, the government procurement has been along the lines of um, you know, like buying post-consumer recycled paper, that that's sort of the, the mindset of procurement. It's like, oh, as long as we just, you know, reduce our amount of paper that we're consuming and buy post-consumer, we're good. And because mm-hmm. digital was seen as sort of the green alternative. Um, but but there are really huge environmental costs. Um, the the you know, ICT, the Global Information Communication Technology, emits more CO2 than, than the airline industry at this point, and it's growing hmm. exponentially. Wow. If you think of things like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, big data, you know, just even just the number of pictures that people take, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a terribly, I'm terribly responsible <laughs> for taking a lot of pictures, um, but the number of pictures we take and where they go, they, there being more pictures taken you know, in the last few years than, than ever that humanity has taken in its entire lifetime. Like it's, it's like since our existence, we have more digital assets that are, um, of, of our lives. And, um, and that all 
has an impact because it has to be stored somewhere, and often it's not stored in something that is um, that's sitting sort of you know off you know it, off of the, the the internet. Often it's it's stored in a live hard drive that's that's running sort of perpetually and needs to be powered and maintained. And um, that that uh, you know so we've got so much information where we're managing, but we're not thinking about it. We're not. It's not something yeah. that's right on our desk, so we don't. We don't think about the internet beyond our phones and, and beyond sort of our, our devices, but, but it has a huge impact. Well, and, and I think people underestimate, you know, just what the, the, the power requirements and cooling requirements of these massive data centers that essentially become the backbone of, of the internet and for a lot, of, a lot of the big companies and big, you know, big cloud hosting services. Um, I mean, these have huge impacts. And, you know, and one of the things that's kind of brought this to the forefront has been, you know, blockchain based technology, mm-hmm. which has been high on the hype cycle. But, but I think it's fair to say, Mike, you know, certainly some of the implications, some of the implementations of blockchain, I mean, Bitcoin being uh, i think the classic example incredibly energy intensive right for sure there's there's been um i've heard stories about uh coal plants that were being decommissioned but then became sort of brought back online just to go off and and provide uh, you know cheap energy for 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 bitcoin and uh, for for mining and for for bitcoin and that's just it seems so crazy that cryptocurrency would be um be responsible for so much additional co2 but i think that the I think there's there's changes within the the crypto market, and it's uncertain where that's necessarily going to go. I think that right. that the the focusing on on crypto is is not that it's illegitimate, but it's it's the I think the bigger problem is tied to to how we we are we're dealing with technology in general, and um, just just we're never. Like just deleting stuff. We're not really good at deleting stuff. It's always so much cheaper just to go off and get another terabyte of data storage somewhere um, than it is to try and and go through our old videos and figure out which of these videos are are worthwhile keeping or not. Um, or is this gonna or or just the data files? Like you know you, you can you know Google has has records on on you know the minute you know, actions and movements around me. And, 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 you know, if I move my phone around, well, probably there's 30 or 40 apps on my phone that are, you know, keeping track of that movement. Um, mm-hmm. And do they ever delete that data? Um, you know, how, what is the process that they, they take that and say, well, this is no longer relevant for my tr- tracking my, the calories that I've consumed and wav- waving my phone around, right? We, we need to, right. <laughs> <laughs> we are not used to deleting as a, as an industry um, and, or for that matter, yep. capturing the, the cost of environmental, you know, uh, performance is an area that's starting to get some some attention, um, but it's not necessarily that. I mean, people sort of assume that we don't need to worry about performance because we can just buy faster machines and we can you know get faster bandwidth. The answer is all about getting more yep. bandwidth. Um, but but if you even if you look at that, I mean, Canada is a huge country, and uh, you don't have to travel very far outside of a major city to be without good internet access, whether that's in your home right. or whether that's that's from your mobile device. Um, so, so trying to go off and serve, you know, Canadians where they are, um, to some extent, it does mean that we're we're having to to scale back our expectations of how many megabytes of data that can we trans uh, transmit on a, on an individual page. Um, and there's very little, you know, the government of Canada certainly is not looking at performance metrics and evaluating this. The U.S. government, I think, will start to do this under the the, um, the Inflation Reduction Act. So the IRA has a, a um, is touching on some of this stuff, um, mm-hmm. and it might start to begin to, to help people think about how they're managing their technology. So, so Biden is introducing mm. some things around this. So there's hope with some of that uh some of that work um but uh but it's slow and and people are are still much more used to uh just 
buying more RAM and assuming that 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 uh, those people who have have you know slow bandwidth will make make do with what they can. Yeah, I mean, there's. I think there's the anecdote that you've shared uh, with me before that you know, in terms of this bloat of our digital tools and websites, that the average website now is bigger. I think you've said than the entire video game Doom when it came out back in the 1990s, That's right. right? Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. and, and so much yeah. of that is bloated stuff. It's like you know, CSS that is not being used. It's it's JavaScript, third party JavaScript applications that somebody turned on at one point because they wanted to gather some information right. and then forgot to look at. <laughs> it's it's stuff that yeah. is is not yeah. not that useful. It's 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 uh it's images that have been uploaded at the full scale that they were taken, um, but not being reduced for for the display that that is going to be rendered at. So you've got you know a four megabyte file lo- you know being being loaded and when it, it could be easily implemented or reduced down to the size you're dealing with with a twenty kilobyte file. So it's just it's just not thinking because people are doing what's easy. You know, as, as we're starting to talk a little bit now about kind of, you know, what's under the hood and, and the code and how some of these tools get developed, I did want to talk to you about open source for a few minutes because, mm-hmm. you know, I know this is something that you've been passionate about throughout your entire career. You're a big advocate for, for open source software. Curious to get, you know, again, both, you know, in general, what is your read right now as to where we're at in terms of open source software being adopted into governments? The- there there was really some good leadership from the government of Canada um, five, ten years ago. There was really a, a momentum building to try and understand, embrace, and, and you know, actually create some open source innovation um, within the government of Canada um, and working with vendors around that. As far as I can tell, that has mostly crumbled away. There still are a few um, people and a few departments that are, are managing that um, and are able to go off and to, to work with and understand open source tools. I mean, certainly Canadian Digital Services is, is absolutely one of them. Um, so is the the uh, you know um, Stats Canada is another sort of example of places that that have have a uh, a team of people that understand how to go off and work with and use open source software. In general, though, the government of Canada seems to be behind other legislations that I'm in touch with. The U.S. is, is doing a lot of interesting stuff. I was, was on a, um, access, uh, an accessibility call in the Drupal community and, and noticed that there were, you know, I think there were five different contractors who were on the call from different digital agencies that were working on how to go off and improve uh, Drupal's accessibility and engage with that. Um, and I'd never seen that before, but they're all working for U.S. government contracts and, and they were in, in, mm. involved in trying to improve that. That's not something that I see have heard at all in, in the government of Canada. There's no real investment with the open source tools or open source communities that they're working with. Um, in Europe, there's some really interesting work being done around open source. Like even just looking at at little Luxembourg, Luxembourg has has less than seven hundred thousand people, and the types of open source tools that they have produced around accessibility are far better than anything I've seen the government of Canada produce. And we have a much bigger population, a much bigger budget. Yeah, and are just not not you know, living up to that. We're 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 looking at what purchase what's what solutions we can buy um, from large vendors, and often those are large vendors that are from the U.S. or Europe. Um, we're not looking at how to support small businesses. We're not looking at how to how open source can be used as an innovation engine, um, both with civic tech and with the the government of Canada, um, but also with with the Canadian economy. Like you know, we're always going to be a small, if best, medium player in the in the globe in terms of our our, our tech technology. So rather than trying to go off and hope to get another Shopify, it 
would be really good if we were actually thinking about how do we work with other small and medium players and build open source tools that allow us to innovate and customize and play on a global scale using open source technology so that we're not having to sort of build it all in-house, that we can try and build an ethos of you know proudly found elsewhere. Um, mm-hmm. So so I think, yeah, we've, we've got this mindset that we have to do it all ourselves and that we, we have to either buy it from the best, which is you know IBM and Microsoft, which you know you never got fired from buying IBM, right? Um, and uh, or or you or you 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 you've got a crack team and you build a custom code base that you're then hopefully going to be able to go off and maintain you know for a few years and run it. But you know neither of those solutions really works very well, um, right? You know, especially when you're dealing with wicked problems and accessibility, security, performance, uh, sustainability. Like those are all wicked problems. You know, user bu- usability. Like you know, all of these things require a lot of thinking, a lot of time, a lot of, of, of effort. And, um, and open source tools are one way to try and get to that, to leapfrog ahead of other solutions. Um, you know, Drupal is as good as it is on accessibility because not just my involvement, but the involvement of like a vast community of, of really smart people have thought deeply about different design patterns, what works, what doesn't, how does that work in context? And, and they're just frankly, you know, yeah, it, it, it's not trivial to go off and to, to build a solution that is as, as accessible as Drupal is mm-hmm. um, if you're starting from scratch or if you're not starting with a, a whole team of accessibility people focused exclusively on how to go off and, and learn best practices that are applicable today. Yeah, and, and you, you know, I think you're getting at something that's really interesting to me kind of conceptually, because I think when we talk about procurement, we traditionally think about either we're, we're buying something, usually a proprietary property, <laughs> you know, or a service of some sort, or we're building, as you said, totally in-house. But open source really is that middle ground where it is kind of almost a, a community, you know, based effort of, you know, a decentralized network of people who are maintaining that code base, and you might be able to fork it and be able to build something kind of unique on top of it. But it's but the business model for that's very different, right? And I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd be curious your sense on this. But my hunch is part of why we've had such a big problem bringing open source into government in a real way. Probably one, there's a bit of a skill set issue of, of maybe some of the existing IT staff in government who maybe not as familiar with open source. Though I know that's not true across the board. Mm-hmm. I see lots of open source advocates, you know, kind of buried in departments in different places. But I, I, my kind of hunch, and I'd be curious your thought on this, Mike, is that it's just because that business model is so different for open source source i think it's been tough to kind of like collectively for governments to wrap their head around how to even like approach that i I would agree and and it's it's not like most governments around the world really intuitively come to this i think canada has some 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 unique challenges in terms of our 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 staffing or our how we deal with technology and that there was a um a real effort to outsource a lot of that that technical know-how to to uh, to staffing agencies or HR staffing agencies are are, are right. so much part of the Canadian tech IT government equation, and and these are are firms that that often um, employ people in uh, positions working alongside government employees um, for you know years if not decades, uh, trying to go off and work on various different tech programs. And these are generally people that that neither have an investment in the IT, nor do they have any investment in um, in the success of the project. In some ways, like they're bums in a seat. They're being paid based on their ability to sit and and sit in front of a screen for X number of hours, and that's how their their profit and their ingenuity is 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 being being 
run. So there's no real incentives to go off and to, right. to build intellectual property that either benefits innovation within that HR staffing agency or, for that matter, with the, the government of Canada because generally the, the government doesn't it, – it actually ex often gives away the intellectual property to an agency that doesn't want to do anything with it because their their business model is bums in the seat. So it's it's like until we sort of crack that that model of HR staffing agencies and, and realize yep. that 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 we need to actually build people uh, build knowledge and, and 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 expertise inside government that our public facing or public employees that that actually you know. Um, care about um, these technical issues and the problems that are in um, that, that these departments are trying to solve um, mm -hmm. then you know and at hiring you know agencies like civic actions that have a um, are, are impact driven companies that really want to see government succeed that are working to try and 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 have part of our DNA that that business model of trying to say we want to invest in government and bring the best and brightest that we can bring onto our teams to actually make sure that that leveraging open source technology that we can help government succeed and we can do that in a way collaboratively with them and with other organizations like we're part of an organization called the 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 Digital Services Coalition um, that that is uh, that has a you know I think it's you know it's quite a, I'm not sure if it's it's twenty or thirty different organizations that are part of of actually I think it's closer to forty different agencies mm -hmm. that are working on on uh, working with government contractors and, and are working as government contractors to try and and, and um, improve uh, you know the 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 front facing digital government implementations um, and these are small businesses that work together and collaborate with within government contracts to try and and um, build uh, build solutions that that ultimately serves government and citizens better um, so it's, it's a it certainly is possible yeah no th thanks Mike I think those those are probably some great kind of closing words as, as we wrap this up but this has been a really um, you know excellent discussion and appreciate you taking the time to share with us you know your 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 thoughts and experiences and views on this I think these are really important aspects for kind of tech in general but I think particularly when we're talking about how governments are are using and bringing in technology into its work um, these considerations around accessibility sustainability open source are you know core to this and kind of keep coming up so thanks so much Mike great having you with us you know it's really easy to get caught up in the newest flashiest technology but when it comes to digital in the public sector well we've got to make sure that everybody is able to be included is able to benefit from it is able to access it and that's where details matter that's where expertise matters so I'm really grateful that people like Mike are focusing on these issues and making sure that happens and are able to engage with government and the private sector to bridge that gap and truly make technology work for everybody. So, so happy that Mike was able to join us for today's conversation. So what do you think? We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on social media. You can use the hashtag Let's Think Digital or email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca. And remember, as always, if you've liked what you've heard today, please share it with colleagues and friends who might be interested in diving into some of these topics a little bit further. Give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app, and be sure to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Mel Han. Thanks so much for listening, and let's keep thinking digitally.